Good morning and welcome to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. I'm Nathan and joining me today is Craig. Hello. And Susie. Hello. And Chrissy. Hello. And our super special awesome celebrity guest star, Rebecca Watson. Hello. Yay. Hello, Rebecca. Welcome to the cast. Welcome, Rebecca. It's good to be here. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The weather's a lot better here than in anywhere <laughs> anywhere yeah, i've is. ever been yeah uh so we'll do a proper interview with rebecca later um let's do some emails or feedback uh happy evil slosh left us a message on the on the website a few of you were making fun of someone contradicting themselves between 100 percent sure and probably the case and i think he's referring to the goldilocks planet chance of life on goldilocks uh, although he may well not be aware of this, it's actually not technically problematic. Uh, of course, what we were saying is, at one point in the article, he was quoted as saying he was 100% sure, and somewhere else in the article he was quoted as saying it was probably the case that there was life on the planet. Um, I've only ever seen probability defined as the limit of an infinite sequence. If an event has probability 1, it's not necessary for it always to occur merely that over an infinite number of trials it fails a finite number of times. I think I may have made a post about something related some time ago uh, and he did. He was the one that was criticizing us uh, when we said uh, something about homeopathy and when you get to Avogadro's limit the, we said there was no chance of there being a molecule in the, in the thing anymore. Technically there's a very very small chance of there being a single molecule. Um, Slightly pedantic, but it's pretty much to be expected <laughs> amongst the skeptical crowd. So I think what I'm going to say about that is technically correct, um, but fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, he's right, but um, I think the point that we were it was more that we were making was. Uh, about the inaccuracy of the reporting of the report. I think we all blamed the report. So we were inaccurately reporting the inaccuracy <laughs> of the <laughs> reporting. <laughs> yeah, yeah but totally. to a slightly lesser degree of inaccuracy. So so we win. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that's all the feedback we've had. Um, we do like getting your feedback. <laughs> Even if we're going to tell you to fuck off. <laughs> that's really going to encourage people to write in. We, we might not do that every time. And you can always tell us how great we are. I mean, you know. That would be good. Now, we've got some uh, notice board items. There's a new product that's just come out, and I thought Craig would be the best person to tell us about this because he's actually wearing one right now. <laughs> well, my new lead-lined undies. <laughs> okay, two new products that have come out. No, I'm actually talking about the placebo band. The placebo band, yes. I got this when I went to TAM, but you can actually order them online at skepticbros.com. Um, so this is essentially a rip-off of the power balance parody. A, a parody okay it's a parody of um the power balance and band and, and others yes two dollars a band so it is it is a um neoprene rubber or silicone band silicone whatever and it has a hologram that um tunes to the natural frequencies of your body I think they actually they get away without actually making any claims for the hologram on this one. But this one is a placebo band, and on the side it has placebo, the power of belief. Which, just for people like Happy Evil Slot, isn't technically correct because you can have a placebo effect without belief, according to someone's um, comment on the website the other day. I recently heard Richard Saunders talking about these, and he 
you can get them in different colours. Um, and what he likes to do is wear several of them on one on his wrist, and that gets people asking him about them. Right. And then that's an opportunity to talk scepticism to them and um, give them a free band. Oh, good idea. Uh -huh. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So they do come in different colours as well, so there's no harm in ordering 30 or and 40 of them. And they're only $2! Yeah. $2 and I think, I could be wrong, but I think they give all the proceeds to a charity. They have. They've just, just recently donated $500 to Rotary's End Polio campaign, which confused me a little bit because I thought we were done with polio, but apparently not. Well, we would be done with it if people would vaccinate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, if we could just challenge the actual power balance. People know. to donate their profits. I want to know how much profit they're making if these guys can make them and sell them for two dollars. Well, they probably come out of the same factory in China. They come out of the exact same factory. The guys actually tracked it down, and that's that's, that's, that's what I was told at. Well, they're selling them for sixty dollars here in New Zealand. Yeah. And what five cents going to breast cancer or something, isn't it? Well, there was something. How generous! If you get a pink one or something. Five cents from their fifty-eight dollar profit. Yeah, but the what the real ones? They obviously have to do the tuning procedures. You're quite right. I apologise. Oh, You're of right. Added value. Very expensive. No, it costs a lot of money. Yeah. So, uh, Craig was at Tam Australia, and unsurprisingly, so was Rebecca. I was. And you guys can give us a bit of a brief summary of how that went. It was awesome. Cool. Right. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Moving thanks, on Craig. now to. <laughs> Some would say amazing. An amazing awesome. meeting, <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, there were just so many really cool people there, including this woman from SGU by the name of Rebecca. How many people were there? 600 and some. Yeah, wow. 600 and something people. Mm -hmm. It was held at the Masonic Centre in um, Sydney, which is quite an amazing place. Mm. Like, um, uh, it was covered up, but there was an altar at the front, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is where they sacrificed the babies. One of the SGU guys is a mason. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Well, it was revealed that Jay was a mason. Is he even allowed to tell you that? Yeah, he did have to kill us all. And, um, yeah, he told us a few facts about masons, and it was quite fascinating, actually. Mm -hmm. And they had this big G hanging on a string, a G-string, in, <laughs> in the middle of the auditorium. And apparently that stands for geometry. Yeah. Not God. Turn <laughs> um, to geometry, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was it was awesome, and there were some some really really cool people there. Um, I got to have my picture taken with James Randi and Dick Smith. They were, they were very cool. Yeah, there's a there's a fantastic picture of um of Ben's Ben's facial hair. I don't know whether he was doing something for Movember, but I think there might even be a picture with Rebecca. Uh, yeah, no, he, he was he was growing a beard uh, for Movember. I, I yes. meant to text him ago. That was quite an awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it'll probably be gone tonight. I would think. Yeah. Um, yeah, so what else to say, it was just, just awesome, there were so many really good talks, um, and yeah, SGU was recorded it? live, and that was, that was a lot of fun, and um, Rebecca did a, did a quiz, where actually, yeah, the quiz was really cool, we had um, the whole audience, uh, Rebecca was asking questions, and people were answering via tweets, which she had up on the screen, mm. um, and so there was the, the SGU plus... George Rab and yeah, as as the panel, so it was the audience against the panel, and the audience won. Really? Oh, by a long shot, it wasn't even close. It was embarrassing. Although, 
uh, the Steve tried to play it off like, well, there are 600 of them, <laughs> and they can answer as many times as they want. And like, but they have to type it into their phones with their fat little fingers. You can just shout it out, you know. But yeah, it was a it was a lot of fun. It was, it was a convincing fun. win by the audience. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, from my perspective, I, I just I really loved. Uh, I thought you know for the first. Tam in Australia, it went beautifully, you know, I didn't see as... Yeah, it was very well organized. Yeah, and it was great for me to, to see a lot of uh, Australian skeptics who I wasn't aware of before, and to figure out, see what work they'd been doing, and, you know, like, I didn't know who Dick Smith was, and I was like, oh, he's the guy in the... I've seen the dowsing video with Randy, okay, he's that guy, and apparently he's a bazillionaire, he has like 15 helicopters or something, okay, and his face is everywhere, <laughs> it's on my peanuts. Like. <laughs> he owned... He started a chain of electronic stores, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Electronics, which still yeah. exists, and has his face, well, they've actually gone away from that brand now, it's but um, but yes, they used to have his face, I've his stylized face. I've seen the face on all the yeah. But yeah, and um, I anyway, I just I I thought it was great, and I I got a chance to meet you know people that I was just only aware of through Twitter and things like that, and so that's always good. Yeah. So, so for fun. those of us who've missed it, is there going to be another one? Well, they're talking about Tam Melbourne next yeah. year. Yeah. I'm not sure that that that's necessarily going to happen, but you know I think it was a huge success, and they're probably um, you know. I hope that they're looking into it for maybe 2012, you know, getting it done. Um, I have hope. to be before, what, December the 21st? Right. <laughs> right, that was my suggestion, is to have it that The day week. after, you yeah, know, the weekend. Yeah. The 22nd of December. Yeah. yeah, have it, like, just straddling it, so, you know, we can all be nervous reading up to it, <laughs> and it's a big celebration if we live. Um, I think it'd be fun. But, yeah, um, I... I desperately hope they have another one, and if they do have another one, I'm not even going to be subtle about it. I'm just going to demand that I be invited back. <laughs> I'm sure you will be. No, it was, it was great. So how does it compare to the other TAMs you've been to? You've been to TAM Regular and TAM London? TAM Regular. TAM Decaf. <laughs> um, I don't yeah. think I've ever heard to London referred to as Decaf. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all tea over there, isn't it? That's so. right. Uh, um, that's, yeah, not the Decaf. Uh, yeah, it's I. It held up, you know. It was it was actually very similar to the first one in London, um, in that you know they made the correct choice of going for a venue that was a bit smaller than what they hoped they could fill, which is the best thing you can do because you don't want to get you know a, a hanger and not be able to <laughs> fill it. Um, so yeah, and it, and the first Tam London was a similar number of people. I think it was about six hundred or so, um, and it it has you know it's. It was all the best parts about TAM, the, the ability to hang out with people, talk to the speakers, um, breakout sessions. Yeah, yeah. But with then, then there was like a little, you know, Australian flavor. We got to do the Harbour Cruise, for instance, was, you know, an additional thing you could do. Yeah, it was a little windy, but that's all right. The views are still magnificent. Um, so, yeah, I to me, it was, it, it was just as good as a TAM Vegas or a TAM London. So... Yeah, the Australians and New Zealanders who participated have nothing to be ashamed of, everything to be proud of. And we've got some news items. I read a very interesting uh, interesting set of articles. Um, apparently, recently, um, the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, has, um, has a study in it regarding... Um, they essentially studied the effect of taking aspirin long-term 
and they have discovered that it has um, an incredible effect on um, rates of deaths from cancer. Um, and so what they found out was that people taking a, uh, a long-term uh, low dose of aspirin, sort of 75 milligrams, which is about a quarter of a standard tablet, on a daily basis for five years, um, certain cancers, uh, apparently, according to one of the lead authors of the study, the, the, ty the type of cancer that you don't want to get, and I wondered whether there was a type of cancer you do actually <laughs> want to get, um, the, the really bad cancers that you're likely to die of quite quickly, um, the likelihood of death from those um, reduced by 34%. Um, so this is quite a major breakthrough um, in terms of something that people uh, in their sort of mid-40s and upwards should be doing, um, taking aspirin daily. Uh, to cut the chance of dying from cancer. So they're actually recommending it as a... Yeah, well, we're, certainly we're not, we wouldn't go so far as to say that we should do that because we're not GPs, but you should go and see your GP about this. But yeah. um, it's, it's quite interesting. It's, it's saying really that um, aspirin is pretty much a, a wonder drug. <laughs> but did they, did they name the cancers that aren't the ones... Um, yes, they did. So, um... Esophageal, pancreatic, brain and lung. Stomach, colorectal, prostate. Yeah. So those are, um, apparently they're, they're the sort of cancers that you get that um, can kill you quite quickly. So what is, how preliminary is this study? Is it a... Well, what, no, what they actually did was they analysed um, eight different studies that had been done over long periods of time and, uh... Essentially, I think it's a, is it a so meta-analysis. Yes, yeah, so like so eight trials, twenty-five and a half thousand patients. Yeah, so it's a fairly large study. So um, one of the one of the interesting things they were pointing out was that the incidence of cancer in uh, the developed world um, has been increasing over the past hundred years, and uh, what they originally thought was that the reason for this was that. Um, people are living longer, and it's and you only get sort of cancer in your in your old age generally, and so um, back 200 or more years ago, when people died young, you didn't see as much cancer because people didn't get to that age of getting cancer. But what they're thinking was that um, the, the the active chemical, which is acetosilic acid, um, can occur naturally in plants, but modern farming techniques. Um, seem to reduce the amount of um, that compound in our food. And so oh. possibly it's the fact that we're eating foods that are lower than that that are allowing cancer. Well, and probably just generally eating more shit than people were. Well, it's funny because, you know, aspirin is one of the uh, best-known natural drugs. Mm. You know, it's the bark of a tree, and it's been used for since long before anybody knew exactly how it was working. So I always use it as a good example to people who promote uh, alternative treatments. Like, this is something that you could call an alternative treatment, but we call it real medicine because it works. Yeah. And we've distilled it down, and we know more or less how it works. And yeah. Yeah. Though I'll just say that you know it was real medicine before we knew how it worked because it worked. Fair call. Yeah. Of course, it's not without its risks, and it can cause stomach bleeding in people. Um, so obviously, if you're going to go on. Um, 
You're going to take our advice. You should go and see your GP. Not that we're giving any advice or anything. No. The Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast does not endorse or encourage the... Do you have a completely unnecessary disclaimer? Yeah, completely exactly. Necessary disclaimer. And and so they're suggesting that perhaps it should be in the water supply. Oh, Ooh, okay. Well, we've got fluoride. Why not put aspirin in there as well? Trying to control our fluids. Totally. <laughs> it's mind control drug. Who's suggesting that, Craig? I think the journalists who are reporting on that were uh, talking know. about that. Okay, so Susie, do you want to talk about the arsenical bacteria? Arsenical. Sorry. Yes, I want to talk about the arsenical bacteria. So this is kind of like, this was almost the biology story of, I don't know, I mean, since since like Darwin, really. And I heard about it a week ago when the, um, the press release came out and I got a, an alert from the Science Media Center. Um, and so it's basically about a paper in science, the title of which is A Bacterium That Can Grow By Using Arsenic Instead of Phosphorus. So basically what it is is some NASA scientists who say they've discovered a strain of bacteria that's able to substitute arsenic for phosphorus. And what's really kind of like wow as a biologist is that phosphorus is so important. So it's basically the thing that um, is one of the components of ATP, so our energy stores. Uh, it's one of the, it's the backbone of DNA and RNA. Um, it makes up um, so phospholipid membranes. I mean, it's just it's just like oh, so it was like wow, you know, a bacteria that that has that can do this. And they were basically the reason why everyone was excited was because this points to there being like there could be life on other planets that don't have phosphorus. So right. their implication they were trying to make was that the life form itself yeah. could be based on arsenic instead of phosphorus. Yes, on, instead of phosphorus. Yeah. Um, but this is most definitely a terrestrial bug that's been found to do this. I actually went to a dinner party that night and we all kind of were a bunch of biologists. Wow, we were all kind of like jabbering about it. It was really quite funny. But then basically over the next few days, um, it's all got a bit sad, really. So there's been two quite fantastic um, debunks of the paper. So it was a so it's a paper in Science, which is one of our top biology journals. Um, and uh, it's a sort of preprint thing, so it'll be one that comes out in the next kind of couple of months, probably. Um, but basically, there's a couple of people who've now been through the paper and just oh, it's just it makes my my heart sink. It's it's an example of bad science, basically. It's really, really, really sad. I don't think we need to go into how bad the science is. What's really shocking, so it it seems that they've basically pre presented a whole load of data that. Um, that uh, basically supports their hypothesis rather than, and there's sort of no control. They, they didn't do things. the proper tests or something. Yeah, there's loads of stuff they haven't done that would really definitively say whether it was or it wasn't able to do this. Essentially, lots of the arguments are that there's probably phosphorus there in very minute quantities and it's enough to do the job. Um, and all the tests they've done to show that it was arsenic and not phosphorus are actually not definitive. And so they could be missing the phosphorus. Um, so essentially, it's probably not. It's probably not utilising arsenic in, in instead of phosphorus for any of these really important things. Um, what the, the the debate has kind of gone on in a couple of directions. One of which has been that the 
the lead scientist at NASA has said that the blogs, because the blogosphere is now completely full of it, saying that basically blogs are not the space for discussing this and the scientific literature is the place for discussing this. One of the, one of the major um, bloggers who's been through it as a microbiologist and she's, so she's preparing all her stuff as a letter to the editor. So yeah, Rosie, um, what's her name? Rosie, or I can't remember her name. O'Donnell. Uh, <laughs> there it is. Rosie Redfield. Um, so she's basically preparing this as a, as a letter to the editor of science. Good. And then they'll come back and say the letters to the editor are not the place to <laughs> So I guess the, the, one of the things about you know people being able to test this is no one can really test it without this bug. So if NASA don't hand over this bacteria to other people to test, which would be contravening a lot of things because basically they've published it and sort of when you publish it you say you're going to give it around. So if they start giving it around, then perhaps in the next six months we might find people doing these defensive experiments. Or they can say, okay, we've done them and da-da-da. Um, but it's the, the, most of the people, so they've given all these criticisms, but they're really saying that all of this stuff should have been picked up at review stage, at peer review stage. And so it's highly, it's highly likely it would have done. It's, it's taken two months to get through peer review. Um, so basically when you get a paper, when you, when you look at the paper, it tells you when it was submitted and when it was accepted. So this was submitted on the 1st of September, accepted on the 8th of November. It hasn't taken very long actually. Yeah, it's um, really fast. Well, uh, so, so six weeks is probably what, when lots of, well, instead of my subject, six weeks is what you'd expect to yeah. sort of get an answer. And I mean, most of these things, if they don't like it, they don't even send out to review. So, so six weeks is probably okay. But um, what would be really interesting is to see what the reviewers' comments were. Do they ever get published? Well, so I'd, um, I'm only aware of, so one journal that I review for, they they say when they ask you if you'll review it that your name will be associated with that review and they they retain the right to put them on the web. So so basically, you know, they will do that and if there are any criticisms they can put up your comments. So these, you know, the reviewers' comments will be there somewhere. So it would be interesting to see what they were. There's a lot of um, a lot of bloggers have been saying that, you know, this is something that was clearly gonna be very um, exciting. Yeah. Controversial, um, so it's no wonder they published it. But it's just, as a scientist, it, it just makes me weep because this kind of shit should not—I mean, should not get in any journal, never mind our top journals. And it reminds me of a quote that I heard um, when I went to a talk a few weeks ago. That was basically 95% of science is reproducible, and the other 5% you publish in Science and Nature. And it's just—you know—it's shit science, and it shouldn't get there. And it's amazing how much of it does. So depressed. Yeah, depressed. I saw a, a great talk um, a few months ago, hosted by Sense About Science in London, by Fiona Godley, who is the editor in chief of the BMJ, BMJ, British Medical Journal, um, and it was all about how peer review fails us again and again and again and again. And I thought it was a really important talk because um, I see skeptics often, sort of non-scientific skeptics, put so much faith in the peer review system um, and unfortunately often that faith isn't you know it's been put in the wrong place I think I don't know what we'd use as an alternative to be honest but there are but there is there is so much wrong with it right yeah if, if you read um, bloggers like Ben Goldacre he writes I think a little bit about uh, the problems of peer review and how we can go about fixing them because it's not the basic concept of peer yeah. review but it's the way that we go about 
soliciting people to review and and how their comments are dealt with um how it's not open you know ben yeah, is that's, a big that's that's one of my big things yeah. is that um you either you because basically when you submit a paper they know who you are but you don't know who they are and they you know they can basically criticize you usually you can tell who it is who's, re who's reviewed your papers because it's going to go to someone in your kind of area and if it's someone you have a massive fight with which there are you know competing groups they will be shitty and they will say oh go away and do this experiment again or da 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 um, so it would be nice if it was basically open both ways or if it was closed both ways so they didn't know who the paper was coming from but again they could probably sort of guess it but you know everybody who reviews you know, almost everyone who reviews a paper is going to have some conflict of interest because they're usually working in the same area. So it's kind of not in their interest that you publish your paper because <laughs> you might be scooping something that, that the other person's doing. And that's why, like, the internet steps up and is the ultimate peer review. You know, it's open. Which is why share. this is fantastic, and yeah. it's really frustrating that that NASA, that that the scientists in inverted commas are saying, "Oh no, don't debate this," and think, yeah, you know, it's all scientists who are doing it yeah. and saying, you know, why not? And the fact that you know, this, the, I guess when something goes out to peer review, it doesn't go to all the experts. I mean, this is clearly something that, you know, it's a kind of microbiology thing, but it's got biochemistry bits, it's got all sorts of stuff. And so if you then get everybody who has some different expertise looking at it and going, well, actually, that's a load of bollocks, because I know about this from my background, that the, the, that the authors have no idea about. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a fantastic thing, and you kind of sort of... <laughs> sort of one of the reasons why I really like open access stuff and it's kind of annoying that you know you need to have a subscription to science to see the paper yeah so that sort of that means that the vast majority of people can't look at it whereas you know with the open access journals anybody can you know can read it, it doesn't matter how far down the list your library is whether they have no money for journals you know you can everyone can can read the stuff so anyway but that's another that's another <laughs> don't get me started on that yeah so there you go <laughs> the science excitable. story that wasn't <laughs> Well, the science story that's turned into a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> it turned into a skepticism story. Because I think that blogger was being a really great skeptic, you know, yeah. tearing it apart. And but, you know, and, and as a scientist, kind of that's your job. Yeah. And it, and it really upsets me to see scientists who who don't get that bit about their job, that your job is not to find evidence for your hypothesis. Your job is to find evidence that your hypothesis is wrong. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and loads of scientists don't get that, and that's quite an important distinction yeah. to make because it's very easy to find evidence. You know, you just hide the bits. <laughs> the File drawer, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So more scepticism in science is what you're saying. Mm. Chrissy, what did you want to talk about yours? Autodidacts. I thought this was interesting. I don't know if you guys will agree or not. This is in India, the SOL, S-O-L-E, Self-Organized Learning Environment. In a village in a village in Tamil Nadu called Kakiyupam, Dr. Mitra asked a class of poor Tamil-speaking kids to use the internet, which they had not yet encountered, to learn biotechnology, which they had never heard of, and English, which they did not speak. Two months later, he was astounded at what they taught themselves. So the basic principle of what he's doing, he goes into a classroom and he asks them a very, very difficult question. And the only rule is that they have to work in small groups in front of one computer. Yes. So three or four to a computer, I think, is what he said. Yeah, he's convinced that kids can learn by themselves, as long as there are small groups, as you said, and have well-posed questions to answer. They must have questions to answer. And they don't get distracted and surf the internet. And they don't get distracted and surf the internet. Before. Part of being in a group probably helps that as well, because you always have one nerdy squat in the group. Says, we're not supposed to be doing this. But they do know that this Dr. Mitra is coming back, so they do know they have to do some work. 
So, but they're saying that they get a 30% of knowledge required to pass the exams just in doing this self-organised learning environment. So essentially it's a, it's a different learning style really um, from a top-down teacher sort of disseminates the information. Mm. I'm, when, I was, um, when I was a kid, maybe seven or eight years old, I had a teacher who um, did this completely new thing that I had never experienced before where each kid was left to move through a series of tasks on their own um, and you know it'd be math and there'd be a chapter to read uh, you know in a book and things like that and she just sort of left us to it and every now and again you know, we would have lessons on specific things but she provided us with encyclopedias and books and you know we were just to do it ourselves and it was it it, it was so huge to me as a kid. Like, it was my absolute favorite grade ever because, you know, because I could move at my own pace and I could concentrate more on the things that I liked more. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it makes it makes perfect sense. Well, that's to what me. they're saying, that sometimes people don't need to be just told yeah. what to learn. You don't need to, to micromanage. I think you don't learn that way. Well, lots of people don't learn that way. Don't learn by just being told. Right. But you actually need to kind of... Find out. Read it. Yeah, find out. Once a child is in the school system and they're used to that mode of teaching and learning, then maybe being given this sort of freedom would be wouldn't work for them because they're they're expecting to the teacher yeah, to tell them what to do. I have a similar anecdote to Rebecca's when I must have been about eight or nine, and they did something similar. It must have been something experimental. I remember very very little about so it. So you experimented on as a child. Yes, <laughs> yes extensively. Told me to take these pills. That explains yeah, a lot. Yeah. Okay, thank you guys. <laughs> Uh, and what they did is they pulled a bunch of us out of the classroom and they dropped us in the resource room, which is where they kept all the school journals and the, the Lego and the little plastic bars, you know, they're used for counting numbers. What are those things called? Abacus. No, little plastic bars and they come in ones or tens. Oh, yes, I know. Yeah. What's that game called? Yeah, yeah. A, little bit, a little bit like the Jenga and you used to stack them up and make yeah. little houses out of them. And uh, what they basically told us, it wasn't done quite as well as Rebecca's, I don't think, what they basically said was, pick something and do a project. And it was exactly what Craig was saying. It's exactly the opposite of what I've been doing up to this point in school. And I had no idea what they meant. Mm. I had no idea how to organise myself or do a project or what I was supposed to do. And so I think I spent about two weeks just doing nothing. <laughs> this is probably the reason why um, this didn't take off, because the experiment <laughs> didn't work. Uh, because I screwed it up. So, sorry about <laughs> that, children of New Nathan. Zealand. Yeah. Um, it's all my fault. You stole the future of New Zealand. Yeah, I actually feel really guilty now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's great to give children some kind of... Uh, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Guidance? Structure? But, oh, well, no, it's, it's almost like guidance. empowering them to find, <laughs> yeah. you know, to find stuff out themselves. And use your own brain to think. And The answer is probably somewhere in the middle where you do leave them alone to do their own thing, but you're still there and, it, and it show them how to do it. They still need some guidance. Well, yeah, well, I mean, from, from what I was saying, though, that there is that structure in structure. that they're given a, a question that yeah. is sort of... Um, to start them off in the general direction and then they're given a question that narrows them down some more to, to give them some guidance. Yeah. So it's, it looks promising, though, and I think uh, it um, could potentially be the next big thing in education. But another thing I'd like to talk about, if I could, is people spend half their waking hours daydreaming. And, um, <laughs> that little... I'm sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> there was one line that the girls liked here. Remarkably, oh, we're talking about more than 2,200 volunteers downloaded an application, so that may be explained, which surveyed them about their thoughts and moods at random times of day or night. 
There is now. Mm, there's an app for that. The UK expert said other studies confirmed people are easily distracted. The iPhone was a novel research um, tool for researchers at Harvard University, and the participants agreed to be contacted, at which point they selected what they were doing from a menu, what they were thinking about, and if they were happy or sad, or how they felt. But remarkably, some participants were prepared to answer the survey even when making love. Now, come on. Uh, okay? yeah. But while the study sample was composed entirely to people who had the device and were prepared to download and be disturbed at any time of the day, the researchers said it provides an insight into how our minds can wander. And looking at something on, and also on the internet, why does daydreaming get such a bad rap? Because it can have positive effects. But a couple of the studies, sorry, turning the page, Reports of happiness were most likely among those exercising, having a conversation, or making love. Again, that's one day. Whereas unhappiness was used, was reported most while people were resting, working, or using computers. And then Dr. Killingworth said, mind wandering is an excellent predictor of people's happiness. You know, you do though, have to be a bit skeptical of the people who reported happiness during lovemaking sessions. <laughs> because presumably the other person is right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so how are you feeling? Eh, eh, you know. <laughs> My mind was sort of wandering to someone else, but, you know. <laughs> I'm a little bit hazy on the science behind that. It, it all seems a little bit not ad hoc, but um, a little bit you know, what are you thinking about? Are you distracted right now? Oh, well, yeah, you just distracted me. I mean, I don't know, I, just, I, don't, know. I don't like it. Well, presumably they didn't tell them that it was a study on daydreaming and one of the one of the options on the list. I was making love on the computer, daydreaming, you know, and I'm happy about it, sad about it. And they did also say that people were most distracted away from the task in hand were more likely to report feelings of unhappiness. So the more distracted you are, the more unhappy you are. Hmm. Or the more distracted you can be. Or, yeah, maybe the more unhappy you are, the more distracted, distracted you become. Distracted you become, yeah. Because you don't want to think about that because that makes you unhappy. Oh, next. Yeah, yeah. The snowball. I'm going to do these science stories really quickly. Physicists demonstrate a fourfold quantum memory. Now, I haven't done as much research on this as I would like, so I'm probably going to get some of this wrong and get criticised later. Um, researchers at the California Institute of Technology have demonstrated quantum entanglement for a quantum state stored in four spatially distinct atomic memories. Uh, and ultimately what they've done... Can you show us a picture? Yeah, there's a picture right there. Oh, pretty picture. I looked at that picture and, yeah. Doesn't explain anything for you? I'll, I'll be the first to admit <laughs> that I don't really understand what they've done. But what it ultimately... <laughs> That's physics though, isn't it? <laughs> if you understand quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics. <laughs> Quite right. Um, but what it essentially means is that they've got the, sort of the next step towards making a quantum computer. Because by entangling these things, and because they've got four of them, and instead of just, I think they said they used to have, be able to do two things there. So, um, important achievement in quantum information science. By extending the con coherent control of entanglement from two to multiple spatially separated physical systems. So, it, and now it's going to give them similar to... Um, quantum network web composed of internet connected quantum nodes, each of which is capable of rudimentary quantum logic operations, similar to the AND and OR gates in computers. Um, Except it's dealing with qubits rather than bits. 
Exactly, and it's going to be faster, and it's going to be bigger, and, and it's going to be all very exciting. Stuff we don't understand. That we don't understand, but yay, good for the physicists. <laughs> all right. Hey, can I just say, tell you a joke? You said about quantum physics, you know, Deepak Chopra is into um, that too. So if Oprah Winfrey married Deepak Chopra, she'd be Oprah Chopra. <laughs> That's true. And that does just barely fall within the accepted guidelines of a joke. <laughs> well, we laughed, we giggled, we sm- our little lips went up. Yeah. Well done. We actually, we did a quiz on Skeptic a few months ago that was um, Oprah or Chopra. And wait, I think there was one more. Oh, yeah, it was Oprah, Chopra, or the Pope. And, <laughs> and it was just a series of quotes and you had to figure out who was who and it was surprisingly difficult yeah. uh, new adhesive device could let humans walk on walls mm. and it's a, it's a <laughs> walk on what? walls Walls. walls. I'll, I'll do all the American translations walk on walls uh, it is of course typically um, what's the word uh, over hyped um, headline but the technology that it's talking about is actually quite interesting. Uh, could humans one day walk on walls like Spider-Man? A palm-sized device invented at Cornell that uses water surface tension as an adhesive bond just might make it possible. Uh, now what they've basically got is a plate. Uh, the device consists of a fat, flat plate patterned with holes, each on the order of a micron, uh, one millionth of a metre. Uh, bottom plate holds a liquid reservoir and in the middle is another porous layer. Electric field is applied by a common 9 volt battery uh, which pumps water through the device and causes droplets to squeeze through into the top layer. The water, the surface tension of the exposed droplets makes the device grip another surface. Uh, and basically what they've got is uh, they've figured out a way of making lots and lots of tiny little dots without them merging together into one huge sheet of water. And that each of those little dots uh, holds the plate together, and by having a lot of them, you generate a huge amount of, uh, of adhesive force. Um, and yes, yeah, quite clear. And the little picture, uh, if you go to the uh, article and have a look, is a little Lego man uh, hanging from a little <laughs> Lego helicopter with the actual <laughs> plate that they invented. Um, uh. So it's it's going to hold people up. So the real question is, do humans actually want to walk on walls? What? Yes. <laughs> I would. I'd like to. It could be useful when painting. It just reminded me, though, of something I saw, a cartoon I saw a few weeks ago. So when you read the title... New adhesive device could let humans walk on walls. Oh, it was, as a question. It was basically when your article starts with a could... Da, 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 this oh, could humans one day walk on walls like, like Spider-Man? Yes. Yes. If the answer is no, probably no, then don't write the article. <laughs> yeah, that was like XKCD or something. Yeah, it was yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's actually another good um, uh, spoof article that was actually written in one of the major blogs, one of the major papers, and it was just all very... Um, there's probably a term for it, but it was basically, this is the headline of the story. Oh, this was the science one that was in yeah. The Guardian. Yes. On the Guardian, and that was absolutely fantastic. Oh, that's a good friend of mine, Martin Robbins. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah, Martin is fantastic. But, you know, like, you kind of take it for granted, and then you, and then you go and you read a science story, and you're like, oh, shit, it really is. There it all is. Yeah. It's so formulaic. Amazing. And my last article that I want to talk about, antimatter held for questioning. Okay, a clever, clever headline. They've captured antimatter. They're then holding it in a magnetic storage. But it got away in the end. No, no, no. Doesn't anyone get how awesome this is? This is one step away from actually having an antimatter engine that powers your warp drive. 
Right? Am I right? <laughs> wow, you mean we're one step away from Technobabble? Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, a research collaboration at CERN uh, has managed 38 times to confine, confine single anti-hydrogen atoms in a magnetic trap for more than 170 milliseconds. Uh, and you're going to have to hold it a bit longer than that if you want your warp drive. Yeah, and possibly more than a single <laughs> hydrogen atom. The journey of a million miles <laughs> begins with but a single step. The point is, it's proof of concept, goddammit, and, um, yay. <laughs> They're ecstatic. This is five years of hard work. So yeah, file your patent now. So another five years, they'll have another one. Yeah. They'll be able to do two, two at a time. They'll get those together. Yeah. And then presumably it's a, hopefully it's a geometric expansion. So five years we'll have four. It'll be like bunnies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Don't don't patronise me. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. Thank you. Okay. So we've got another couple of news items in Ponsonby News yeah. under the segment that we're choosing to call Woo Zealand. And I'm going to leave this all up to Susie, because there's a topic here that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> okay, we won't start with that one. Um, we'll start with Kiwi Adventurer Leads Yeti Hunt. Ooh. How exciting is this? So basically, there's a guy called Mike, who is an Air New Zealand pilot who conquered Mount Everest conquered? a few years ago. You mean you mean climbed? Yeah, I don't think you can say climbed. conquered when other people have already been up there. <laughs> he claims to have conquered. Okay. Um, who climbed Mount Everest, um, but he is leading an international yeti hunt. <laughs> so, the website for the uh, trip is called returnthehand.com, and yeah, it's hilarious, it's yeah, so exciting. Return the hand. Yeah. Turn there now. So, basically, this is, this is a story um, that goes back to the 1950s, when a, uh, they, he, they claim he was a yeti hunter stroke scientist what kind of scientist he was, um, called Peter Byrne, who uh, basically went on an expedition to Nepal, heard the story about how there was a... Oh, no, sorry, he found yeti tracks and and dung, and then in a monastery found a hand and a skull that he thought came from the yeti, or that was he was told came from a yeti. Um, then, bloody bloody blah got the, got the monks drunk, managed to steal one of the fingers or possibly more than one of the fingers, um, took, I think he must have taken photos, replaced the fingers with human fingers and then smuggled them to England for analysis. Wait, what? He replaced them with human... Where did he get those? Well... Exactly. Um, so this, this is all in the 1950s, pre... pre stop giggling, Nathan. Um, anyway, then... then So they were smuggled to England for analysis. Um, there seems allegedly. To be allegedly. Allegedly smuggled or allegedly analysed? The stolen fragments were allegedly smuggled back to America by Hollywood Star. Well, they made it to England anyway. Uh, were analysed and came up as inconclusive. What a surprise. Um, anyway, then in the 60s, um, Edmund Hillary, our favourite New Zealander, um, went back to the monastery and declared they were a hoax. Uh, but then there was basically a TV programme done about them. Uh, one of these kind of mystery programs. That'll sort out the truth. Yeah, exactly. Um, and sort of around about this time, they disappeared. So this is the late 90s, early 2000, they disappeared. Anyway, uh, Weta Workshops have created life-sized replicas of this hand and, um, and the um, skull. And this guy is basically 
uh, going to take these to the monastery. So he's basically saying whoever has them, because they reckon they've they're you know went on the black market and somebody's got them somewhere, and um, he's saying could we have them back and we'll take them back to the monastery, um, and I'll come anywhere in the world to pick them up, no questions asked. But in April he's going to take the replicas back to the monastery so that they can basically you know show them as these were the ones that you know da 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 generate some income anyway i just thought that was really really funny so weta have made some replicas of some yeti bits that this um alleged conqueror uh is going to take there and so return the hand.com i think it's just it's just really funny Nobody else think that's funny? Yeah, the yes, I do. So how did the Witter anyway. people actually know what this thing was meant to look like? Well, I think, so this guy, this Peter, um, in the 50s apparently took photos. So that's what they must, you know, they must be photos that the, that those those guys from Weta have... Uh, so maybe Rebecca could tell us about that. Yeah, she you? probably saw it. <laughs> this is why they made her sign a non-disclosure agreement. Right, she can't talk yeah, about it. Yeah, I can't, I can't actually talk about it. If I, uh, I, I, I hung out with the guys from Weta, um, and they were awesome because they're skeptics and they listen to uh, Skeptics Guide to the Universe, and they're really cool guys. But I, I, you know, if I saw a Yeti hand, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell you. Yeah, you know, it's difficult to say. But uh, no, I, I'll, I'll ask them though. I'll, I'll ask them if they. <laughs> I mean, are we sure that this this is for real? Is it? This isn't like some viral marketing thing for a movie, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Help us by donating. No, I think these guys are going. Anyway, um, story number two. Um, the man that Nathan's not allowed to talk about, but that doesn't mean that we're not allowed to talk about him. Um, Ken Ring. Don't be such a Nazi. It's not about Ken Ring. Okay, it's oh, not about. Right it's not Ken Ring's not to blame for this. Um, so, I uh, went to Borders in Queen Street um, last weekend, weekend before, whatever, um, to find Simon Singh and Ed Zodern's trick or treatment book because I borrowed it from Ben, and it's a book I think every house should have. And I'm always keep going, oh, what, what did he say about that? Anyway, so I finally went and bought it. Um, I, it was quite hard actually to buy it, so I went to Borders in Queen Street and said, uh, "Where's the science section?" And so she pointed me to the science section, which was really, really tiny. And I've put, I've taken a picture of this because I think we should put it on the web. Um, so there's a big sign saying science um, and quite a small section. But pride of place taking up an entire shelf with his face staring at us was Ken, Ken Ring. Ring. Ken Ring predicting the weather 2010 and 2011 in the science section. Wow. So I marched up to the desk <laughs> and said, I would like to make a complaint. And um, the lady said, uh, that's very nice. I'm afraid we can't do anything here. And that their parent company, um, who is in Australia and whose name I can't remember, um, so like a red something, um, Red Group, Red Group Retail in the States, in, in, sorry, in Australia, who own Borders, they determine where, what section every book goes into. And so she said, if we want to complain, which we must, we need to write to Red Group Retail and tell them, Ken Ring is not science and he does not belong in the science section. It's a good idea. I was just incensed. But then later on that day, I went to a fantastic bookshop in Mount Eden, whose name I've also forgotten. And they had a lovely, you, as soon as you walked in the door, they had a science section. They had like a table that was full of science books and math books. And, and it was just, I was like, oh, so you can't get, you know, 
And if you like this bookshop, it really would have been a good idea for you to write the name down so we can... You should give them a shout out. It's interesting that Borders science section is so small. But their alternative medicine section is huge. But this is Borders on Queen Street. On Queen Street. That's a huge shop. Yeah. Yeah, and it's absolutely terrible. I was just um, shocked. Okay, so we'll put a link. We'll put a link up on the uh, on the website. You can go on, uh... It might be the Time Out bookstore actually, on Mount Eden Road, and it was fabulous. I was. So we'll try and so find a link fabulous. to that as well. So yeah, you can... and I was just so impressed because you know I was feeling kind of a bit depressed and thinking, God, no wonder science is kind of getting such a bum run in New Zealand, you know, because basically everybody reads rugby books and nobody reads science books, and you can't. If you go to Borders, you can't find them. Yeah. But then I, and then I went into this bookshop, and they, like, right in front of us, they had, they had, like, maths books and all sorts of things, and I was like, whoa, that's a bit almost too, going too far. Is it an independent shop? Yeah, it's a little independent shop. Support your independent bookstores. They're worth yeah. it. So I was embarrassed that I had actually bought um, Trick or Treat from the other shop. Um, anyway. Okay, so now it's time for oh, Susie rants about the Ponsonby News. We have to get me some music. We should really have an intro for you. Okay, this is a, this is a call now. All everyone who's listening, if you've got some musical uh, talent, or even if you haven't, do us a sample of an intro for Susie's segment. Send it in, and if it's any good, we'll use it, and maybe even a prize. I'll, I'll look into that. A subscription to the Ponsonby News? <laughs> no, it might be a book or something. We want some books as prizes. Um, so there's only one thing that I'm going to moan about today, um, and it's my favourite friend, John Appleton. Um, and his column this month is um, Breast Health. Internationally renowned Kiwi tenor Will Martin puts his hand up to help. So basically he is um, saying that this guy, Will Martin... Oh, I've never heard of, but anyway, that's because I'm... He's a singer. Didn't he win a reality program or something? Okay. So he um, has got a new album out, and he is um, donating $1 per sale to a new charity called Breast, the Breast Health Foundation. So, there, so John Appleton is asking you to go to the Breast Health Foundation's website and buy this guy's album through there, and, uh, and they'll donate to this charity. And so I thought, John Appleton, charity, hmm... This is interesting. Um, I'll go and see what this charity is all about. Um, so it's basically a new charity um, which is, is going to put an emphasis on prevention of breast cancer. Very interesting. Right. An aspirin a day. All natural. So if you go to their website, which I don't recommend you do, um, the Breast Health Foundation, so it says, established in 2010, it's a non-profit charitable society created to include women and men around the world in a new conversation about breast health. Are you interested in understanding how your daily lifestyle choices, nutrition, emotional well-being and environment affect the health of your breasts? The Breast Health Foundation brings you the latest research and information to answer these and other vital breast questions. Breast health questions, sorry. Not just any breast questions. <laughs> if you go to their so so basically their so their website has got their homepage it's got an about thing which is about their founding members which I shall get onto in a minute and then it's got breast health factors which you basically can't see any of their information until you join them become a supporter and pay at least ten dollars to contribute um, so and I haven't done that mainly because I'm going to tell you about their founding members so their founding members. Uh, Alison Rowe MBE, she's a marathon runner and 
anyway, she's she's obviously famous. She's an MBE. Um, it's got a GP. It's got a DIP ND medical herbalist. It's got um, another guy, a Canadian, who is a natural medicine practitioner. Oh, it's got another DIP ND. Uh, it's got my favourite friend, John Appleton. It's got Kathleen Cole, who's an accredited bioimpedance analy analysis pr practitioner. I've never heard of that. Um, it's got it's... A, a traditional Chinese acupuncturist and naturopath. It's got a GP with an interest in nutritional medicine. A dentist who was the one who raised some hackles a few months ago in the Ponsby News because he basically says... Something about root canals or something? Yeah. Um, they've got somebody, they've got a doctor who um, is pioneering breast thermography as a safe, effective, non-invasive way to monitor breast health. And I thought this was a woo thing. I thought this was a definite, there's, the jury's well out there whether these should be replacing mammograms. The, the woo part is that thermography is being touted as a cure. Mm. And, um, or, uh, and also sometimes it's being touted as something that's exceptionally better. But um, it's, it, it is actually, you know, an appropriate tool to be used in certain situations, but it's not, you know, it's not always better, and it's not, it certainly doesn't actually cure cancer, which, you know, some And it's not to replace the mammography. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, last but not least, a registered naturopath and a gynecologist who's also a kinesiologist. Oh, good. So, um, I think we need to say no more, really, about this charity. I think you could have probably stopped about three minutes ago, actually. <laughs> I don't think we would get the idea. Is it actually a, a non-profit charity? That's what it says, yeah. Um, because, you know, if they're, if they're spreading misinformation, you might look at what the Australian skeptics did to the Australia Vaccination Network. They got their charity status revoked and uh, pretty much crippled them. So I guess that means I need to spend my $10 and go through all their stuff. Okay, that'll be my job over Christmas then. <laughs> and ask your listeners to help out because they can help comb through things as well and compile, you know, a list of grievances. And indeed make their own complaints if they want. Yeah. Don't wait for us to do it. Actually, I just want to mention that when I was just Googling it just now, the first result is actually, it appears to be a legitimate organization. When you Google Breast Health Foundation, so you might want to mention that it's breasthealthfoundation.org. Yeah, the other one is it redirects to mybreast.org.za. So, but yeah, it's called Breast Health Foundation. So, the scammy one is breasthealthfoundation.org. Um, and one last thing um, about which we should have said earlier about the power balance wrist brands is that the um, Australians have had some luck. Basically. Um, the distributors of power balance wristbands have been found to breach federal laws by falsely claiming they can prove people's fitness, says an independent review panel. And apparently they have to have had to remove some stuff, some claims from their website. Yeah, it's good activism, yeah. But um, it was mentioned on the skeptic list that we should be doing the same thing here, which some of us should get off our asses and do that. So lots of things to do over Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> Other than Christmas and spending time with your family and whatnot. <laughs> You've seen my family. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I trust they don't listen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And now we are going to have an interview with the Rebecca Watson. Oh, I love her. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, she does that show, Skeptoid, is that is that the one? Mm. Skeptico. You're well. listening to Skeptoid. <laughs> I'm Rebecca Watson. Speaking of that, um, you do a lot of stuff. I, yeah, I tend to keep pretty busy, yeah. How do you do all these things? And 
I guess I don't know if you actually have a personal life or not, but well, I built a cloning machine, <laughs> and so yeah, I just sent out my cl- clones to do the lame stuff. Uh, I'm actually a clone. They right, so you're right here now, now doing the yeah, lame the stuff. Yeah, Rebecca is surfing. Cool. Right now, but um, <laughs> yeah, well, the way I get a lot of stuff accomplished is by doing what I love for a living. Basically, this is what I do with my life. I get to travel around the world giving talks and um, it's fantastic and so that also is my social life you know I mentioned the Weta guys they they took me out last night um, the reason why I was hanging out with them they they have a um, book coming out and so they, they took me to like the this art gallery where they were launching it and so yeah and so doing what I do gives me these opportunities to actually have a really cool slash geeky <laughs> social life as well. I think I think that's the goal of everyone here, is it? <laughs> Pretty much. Do skepticism full time. Yeah, you know, I'm living the life. <laughs> <laughs> um, so really quickly then, tell us all of these things that you're doing. Skeptic's Guide. Yeah, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe every week. Unless I'm in New Zealand where there's no internet. Uh, we have some internet. <laughs> uh, it's just the worst in the hotels. Like I cannot make it go. <laughs> it's really annoying. So yeah. Little Atoms. Yeah, Little Atoms podcast and radio show. Although again, that's one that I have to give up while I'm traveling. But I recommend everyone listen to it. So how did you get into that? Um, it's like turn up in the UK and say, "Hey, I'm here." And... <laughs> no, it's it's quite flat- flattering actually. I gave a talk in London a few years ago, and. Um, I got a, a, a message from Neil Denny, who is the host, one of the hosts of Little Adams, and he told me that the night after I was doing my talk, or that later that week, he was having Tim Minchin on his show on Little Adams, and Tim had said that the only way he would do Little Adams is if I was on as well, because oh, no. <laughs> it turns out Tim listens to SGU and is a fan, so that's how I ended up on my first episode of Little Adams, was uh, co-interviewing Tim Minchin. And that's how you get to be hosts on <laughs> podcasts, just by turning up just at the Just by gear. being awesome. <laughs> so, no, that was really flattering, and we had so much fun doing it that when Little Adams was looking for, you know, another host to add to the mix, they, they brought me on board. So it's actually a radio show that they then podcast? It is, yeah. It's every Friday at 7 p.m. And what else? What else? Um, well, I run Skeptic. That's what uh, I spend most of my energies on, I guess. Um, we've got we're up to 12 or 13 writers, I guess, and um, do a lot of cool skeptical activism. Um the most recent of which I mentioned at TAM uh, in Sydney a few weeks ago, but the uh, the skeptics basically managed to combat anti-vaxxers who were attempting to get misinformation uh, shown in the form of a public service announcement before films oh, the week after amazing. Thanksgiving. I'm, I'm so proud of what they did because in just a few days, um, right before these PSAs were set to go live and be seen by, I don't know, tens of thousands of people in major markets, we encouraged our audience to write AMC, the large uh, cinema chain in the U.S., and tell them don't run these ads. And AMC got flooded with messages and responded immediately and pulled the ads before they were ever shown. Um, of course, the the result of that, you know, so we did that, and the anti-vaxxers have responded. And of course, the response was to offer, 
you know, more logical arguments and uh, reasoned <laughs> debate. Wait, no. Uh, no, what they did was they took uh, one of my, the, the skeptic who led the campaign, Elise, she's a mother in Chicago, they took her photos from Facebook, they reposted them on her site, they posted insulting, nasty things about her. Threatening. Encouraged, yeah, there were a lot of threatening um, things. Um, worse than that, they called Child Protective Services on her and attempted to get her child taken away. Um, that's outrageous. That's how they fight back, you know, because they don't have facts, they don't have information, you know, all they have is bitterness and hatred and ignorance, and that's what they do. So, yeah, but, you know, the the good thing is that the skeptics remain strong, and, you know, we, we're a team, which helps, you know, it's not just Elise out there on her own putting up with it, she's got a great team of strong women who are supporting her, and a wonderful audience who supports us. So it's, you know, it's fantastic, and we keep doing bigger and better things every year. So, uh, so yeah, skeptic is another thing I do. Um, I've, got a, I've got a skeptic podcast, you know, that we uh, infrequently update, and along, a part of that is a podcast I do called Curiosity Aroused, which you can get separate from, because the skeptic podcast is mostly us having fun and usually drinking and laughing and being skeptical. And then Curiosity Aroused is a, um, like a whole other sort of audience for us. We're reaching out to people who don't consider themselves skeptics, may have never heard of skepticism. Maybe they're not even into science. They're just curious about things. Um, so they find us by searching for information on vaccines, say, um, to use that as an example, and they'll find this 20-minute kind of fun, lighthearted thing that doesn't mention skepticism. It just talks to them like a normal person and gives them the facts in a fun way. Um, and so that's a lot of um, work because it's a, you know, it's there's a lot of music involved that I mix in with it, and you know, a lot of post-production involved. So I've been putting it off. But on this trip, I've had a lot of people come up and ask me why it hasn't been updated. So I think I'm going to get back into doing that. Um, yeah, what else? It's YouTube. Oh yeah, I haven't been able to update YouTube since I've been here. Except for I think the last one I did was right after I got to Sydney. I was really jet lagged, and in order to stay awake. I had like an hour before people were coming to pick me up and take me out. So I'm like, must stay awake, do a YouTube video. And it's just me basically falling asleep in front of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, YouTube is, is a fantastic way to reach, you know, non-skeptics and, you know, improve our reach a bit, even though you also hit a bunch of assholes. Um, YouTube's very important as well because a lot of people are getting information from YouTube and um, I the, guess the pro science. There needs to be. They need to have some of our good the information. Pro science, the pro evolution. Yeah, and there's a good community of YouTube atheists, and I'd like to see more skeptics setting up YouTube channels to sort of build off of that, and you know, because it's a good, um, it's a good community. Like the atheists have a back and forth. They ask each other questions, and they, you know, they work, they collaborate on videos and things like that. And it's yeah, it's worthwhile because you reach you reach people who would never think to go to your skeptical website, you know. But they're cruising around YouTube, and if you're doing something cool, they'll watch. So yeah. Um, so what is your background in history, and how did you get into skepticism? I got into skepticism because I worked my way through college as a magician and a juggler, and there's a there's a lot of overlap between magicians and skeptics, and so. I was a fan of, you know, Penn and Teller, and when I was a kid, you know, and they turned me on to Randy, uh, James Randy, who offers a million dollars to anybody who can prove they have paranormal abilities, 
And, uh, you know, Ricky Jay and people like that, I was just really interested in hoaxes and scams. I sort of got more into it when I when I heard about Randy's Million Dollar Challenge, and I really, yeah, <laughs> going after it, you know. <laughs> no, I, 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 I thought it was a really, really good idea, and I, yeah, like I said, I was just interested in the, in the hoax sort of part of it, the scams, and as I got, as I read more of Randy's work, and also Penn and Teller, actually, they, it, I realized that, that the debunking stuff, the investigating bad science, goes hand in hand with sort of this love and appreciation of good science, um, sort of replacing fantasy with a picture of the universe that's quite wondrous and, you know, inspiring in its own regard. So, I, you know, I, I have no scientific training. Um, I, everything I know about science, I learned by reading books, um, which I do a lot. Um, if I had a chance, you know, I would go back to college, you know, for physics or something. But, <laughs> but as it is, I I feel really um, lucky to be able to talk to people who do know what they're talking about when it comes to science and to learn more from them directly through what I do. And I think it gives me a a, a bit of a good uh, platform from which to speak to people who might not be scientists. Um, for instance, on SkepShape, we have a ton of artists, and this actually came up with the Weta guys last night. You know, they're, they're a bunch of artists who are really creative, but also have this interest in science, and sometimes they feel, like, bypassed by the skeptic community because there's a lot of talk about... Uh, the sort Quantum of fourfold right, computers. Yeah, things and you don't even know anything about. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. <laughs> right, you know, there's a focus on the engineers and the scientists and, you know, the, the, the educated people, you know. Um, Edu by educated, I mean, you know, if they've completed college, maybe masters and things like that. And we tend to put those people on the pedestal. And in, on Skeptic, we like to call out people who are, um, who are combining art and science in interesting ways and uh, thinking creatively but still rationally. So, yeah, I think that not being a scientist has actually kind of given me an opportunity to help skeptics sort of spread out that way a bit. My next question is, what do you do for a job? But you said that earlier, you're actually doing this full-time. Yeah, I, I'm a writer, so I, you know, I used to work full-time in an office and also do freelance work. And um, that, you know, eventually I, well, when I moved to London, I quit my full-time writing gig and just did freelance and it was enough. Um, I can live on very little <laughs> uh, and, you know, yeah, so I, I do freelance work when I need the money, and that's that's what I do. I'll ask you what your star sign is, because we're, we're asking everybody. <laughs> or Phaeacus. Oh, well done, me too. No, <laughs> no oh. it's not. I just like saying it. It rolls off the tongue. Um, Libra. I'm a Libra. Can you tell? Yeah, yeah I was going to say Libra. <laughs> yeah. Why do you think you should be the next apprentice? <laughs> uh, have you ever seen that show? I made a comment on Twitter a while back. That was, can someone tell me a country where they don't have The Apprentice? Because I was I was in London and I saw that they had it, and it's just so vile. Oh, I just it makes me hate humanity, it really does. I'm becoming like in my old age, in my dotage. Is that how you say that dotage? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's one of those words that I've read all my life and never really heard. <laughs> yeah, I'm becoming I'm becoming a kind of hippie, cranky sort of anti-consumerist, anti-mass media. <laughs> oh, but that's just that's also shit television. Yeah, well, yeah. I actually happen to quite like it. I don't know what everyone's getting all up in arms about. Oh, because, no, you know what? It, it, this is the thing. 
you know, not to get too serious about it, some stupid television show, because I'm a fan of crap TV every now and again. <laughs> but uh, but when you watch it, you realize like they're encouraging people to be uh, to to be mean to each other. <laughs> you know, they're they're and they're celebrating this way of getting ahead and like to you know this sort of backstabbing. Yeah, like. I don't know. I think. I think. Yeah, but they're not the only program. I mean, yeah. TV is full of. No, I love TV. I, I mean, Survivor comes to mind. Backstabbing and. Yeah, like you know, I think they're encouraging us as a society to celebrate the wrong things, the wrong personality traits, and the wrong things that we should be learning and discussing. You know, that's all. <laughs> Who hates you the most? Oh wow! Who hates me personally the most? Oh, I have this ex-boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> um. Who would be my enemy? That's a good question. Well, you know, the thing is, I guess I could say, you know, the, the anti-vaxxers or something, but um, I, I, the, hmm. <laughs> I suppose the, the worst um, comments that I've ever received has, have actually been from other skeptics who just don't like the way I do things. Um, yeah, so, and actually I talked about this a bit at TAM, and it seemed to surprise people, so now I've started occasionally retweeting some hate mail and stuff that I get, um, and it's usually the sexist um, emails that I get from, from skeptics since I've been on Skeptics Guide that I find, you know, most disappointing, and those are the people who seem to hate me the most, because those are the ones who, you know, threaten to rape and kill me, you know, and so and from I don't, skeptics. yeah, and I don't get that sort of thing usually from the believers, you know, um, although on YouTube I do, but that's, you know, that's YouTube, um, <laughs> so, so yeah, I would say, um, anti-feminist skeptics probably hate me the most, not to bring it down too much, yeah, thanks for that, <laughs> I think they're, they're, they're not common, but they're loud, you know, yeah, what's the one question no one ever asks you? but you wish they would. Oh, God. You should have asked her all that yesterday. <laughs> Do you want any ice cream? <laughs> no, one's, no one in an interview has ever offered me an ice cream sundae. Oh. I'm really sorry, oh. but I can't offer you an ice cream sundae because our freezer no. is on the blink. Thanks for nothing. Thanks for nothing, guys. Never coming back to New Zealand again. <laughs> and so what, are you, what have you liked most about New Zealand? So? Oh, man. There's so much to choose from. I've had such a, a great time, you know, um, I I think meeting, this is silly and this sounds, you know, sounds like I'm just saying this to score points, but the the people have just been so oh, seven out of ten. lovely, you know, <laughs> like, like at every, I've done Christchurch and um, Wellington and now I'm here in Auckland and everyone I've met has gone out of their way to make me comfortable, to make me happy, to take me places, you know, the when I first arrived, I didn't know, you know, I had a whole day in Christchurch, and I thought that I would just be wandering around on my own, and the guys were like, no, of course not, and so they, instead they put me in a car, they give me this big tour um, of, of the area, and then they they show me a volcano, and then they take me to a cave where there's a ring laser, where a skeptic is uh, sitting in a cave <laughs> studying the um, speed of the rotation of the planet <laughs> using this ring laser, and he showed us around and answered all my stupid, stupid questions as if, you know, they weren't stupid. <laughs> um, <laughs> then they took me to see the Martin Jetpack, the first potentially the first commercially viable jetpack in the world. They, those guys 
don't even know me. They let me try it on. <laughs> Dummies, you know. So I ran as fast as I could, you know, trying to hit the buttons, but yeah. And then they they let me use their simulator. Like they have a um they they've hacked a Microsoft Flight Simulator and hooked it up to a Jetpack sim so that they can test it and refine the controls. And this isn't something they don't have like public tours. This is just in a warehouse, you know, outside of the city and they're like, "Yeah, sure, you want to try it out? Let's strap you in, you know. Try not to kill yourself." <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, things like that. And then they took me to a burlesque show. <laughs> I'm like, guys, this was my perfect day. <laughs> you know, that was my introduction to New Zealand. Um, so it's been so wonderful, and I can't wait to come back. Well, you're certainly welcome back any time at all. All right, thanks. So thank you very much for coming on the cusp. Thank you. And uh, enjoy the rest of your trip. Thanks, we'll do. And that just leaves us with the word of the day. And today's word of the day is lecanomancy, which is divination using water in a basin or bowl. Yeah, I do that frequently. Washing up. I don't know how many times I've been doing that and thought, shouldn't there be a word for this, you know? I know. Now we know it. Now you know, yeah. How do you use it? It doesn't just flow and sit in the bottom <laughs> of the bowl. I guess you stare at it long enough until you have some visions about... And then you the do future. some daydreaming and... Yeah, then you flush the toilet and you leave. Yeah. <laughs> and Craig, you've got a quote. From... I do, yes. This is from Susan Ertz. Millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Very nice. And you've been listening to the Completely Unnecessary Skeptical Podcast. If you'd like to send us a message or feedback, check out the contact page on our website, thecusp.org. 